Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Collective Insights and the work we do at Neurohacker Collective is made possible from the support of our community and the sales of our product, Qualia. Qualia is a comprehensive mental enhancement supplement designed to improve focus, mood, and flow state. Learn more about Qualia at neurohacker.com and use coupon code Collective Insights for $20 off your first order. Okay. Welcome to Collective Insights. I'm your host, Dr. Heather Sanderson. I'm a naturopathic doctor and the medical director of North County Natural Medicine. I'm also a medical advisor to Neuro- Neurohacker Collective. So today I'm thrilled to introduce to you a teacher of mine, Michael Gelb. I met Michael soon after starting my own clinic, and as I was realizing how little I knew about hiring, leading, and creating a team, I, I just had these thoughts. I'd, been, I'd spent five years with my head buried in medicine, the labs, the treatments, the herbs, the pharmaceuticals, and I hadn't really delved into how to create a team. I had learned a lot about communicating with patients, but not so much about hiring, firing, and, and managing a business. So I signed up for a course that was taught by Michael called The Art of Connection, and it was subtitled The Seven Relationship Building Skills Every Leader Needs Now. So I was clearly very interested quickly. Over that weekend, I learned a ton about myself and my communication style, but it also helped me to build practical skills that uh, helped me communicate with my staff for sure, but also every single human that I encounter. So that's my personal story of how I connected with Michael, and I've asked him to join us today on Collective Insights because when I ask my patients about their health, the things I'm most interested in are the causes of disease and the things that promote health and optimization. Those, that list of things is not very long. This might be kind of surprising, but the way that I distill it down is that there's really only five things that cause disease. An imbalance in nutrients, structure, either molecular structure, like at a genetic level, or the macrostructure at, say, the spinal level, toxins, stress, which is why Michael's here, and then infections or immune imbalance. So when I break down stress, and every, almost everyone comes in with stress, right, that affects the health of all of us. But there are three primary causes of stress in our lives. One is relationship stress, either at home or at work. Two is that existential stress around purpose in our lives. And three is typically financial stress. So Michael is an expert in how to reduce both personal relationship stress and work stress, excuse me, work relationship stress, and then also finding that purpose. So he's written two books. He's the author of both The Art of Connection and How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci. So I've asked him to come here today to describe some of the tools and things that you can learn by either reading the books or taking some of Michael's courses. So welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks so much. Great to be with you. So I thought we'd start by... um, if you could just tell us a little bit about how you got into this, how you learned so much yourself about connecting and finding purpose in life. Sure. I, well, I was lucky I found my purpose in life very early. I was, I was wondering what it was. I didn't want to just go get a job or get some qualification and take my place in the massive bureaucracy of life. I wanted to really, I had some really clear criteria I knew I wanted to do something that would help me learn and grow. 
And I knew I wanted to do something that would help heal the world and help and be of service to other people. And I really didn't know what that was. Uh, I, I thought of actually going to medical school, but in those days, they didn't have holistic medicine, mind-body medicine, naturopathic medicine was not really, excess training programs weren't easy to find. Uh, I also thought of, of getting a PhD in, in psychology, but again, you had to study neurosis and psychosis, and I was interested in full self-expression and the fulfillment of human potential. So there really wasn't a career path laid out, but I knew what my criteria were. I knew I wanted to learn and grow, and I knew I wanted to help other people. And that's exactly what we're interested in here at Neurohacker Collective. So I just I just was lucky enough to find my way to an ideal blend of disciplines that allowed me to discover and align with and live a life around a higher purpose. That's exactly what we're interested in here. So in The Art of Connection, you talk about these relationship-building skills that anyone can use, whether they're in a leadership position or maybe they're the leader of their household, right? So the first chapter talks about embracing humility, and you, you set up these seven steps, so I'd like to just go through them. So the first one is embracing humility. Can you tell me about how that manifests and how we could show up in a way that we can harness that humility in a good way? Yes, it's, well, it's a really important question because... There's, there's false humility. There's, oh, that's nothing, self-deprecating remarks, uh, pretending like you don't matter. That's not what we're talking about. It, I think what it comes down to is just not taking yourself too seriously. <laughs> being able to have a little laugh. Yeah, being able to, to laugh at yourself, to be lighthearted, uh, uh, Angels can fly because they take themselves lightly. <laughs> That's a quote from G.K. Chesterton, which I, which I love. And I think, I think it's also recognizing that although we have different status in life, different people have different positions, different degrees of wealth, different degrees of fame or renown or reputation, that fundamentally on the level of the deepest self, all beings are fundamentally one. We're not just equal, we're actually share one consciousness. So our seeming separate selves are just refractions of one consciousness. It's hard not to be humble when you think of yourself in that context as a piece of the yeah. universe versus the separate self. Well, just, yeah, it just, and if you think you're really this, you know, fabulous separate self and whatever, then, well, then what happens when that dies, which it definitely will? Uh, in other words, the illusory temporary self is just a little sneeze of the universe. <laughs> I mean, it's not, you know, it's so. Uh, temporary, obviously, just obviously. You know, we're not certain of many things, but one thing we're certain of is these bodies will not be around indefinitely. So uh, humility, you work with a lot of CEOs. You do some business coaching for very high-level CEOs on the East Coast, and I just can't even imagine having this conversation with some, uh, you know, oh, head honcho. Oh. So can yeah, you tell me how that usually I, goes? I, I, 
you'd be surprised how a lot of the really best CEOs get this. And they have a natural humility and they treat everybody with fundamental dignity and respect. And it's actually one of the distinguishing characteristics of, of the finest CEOs that I've been lucky enough to work with over the years. It's also the, the kind of CEOs that wind up hiring me are tend to be more enlightened and more humanistic and more compassionate, and they want support in that part of their own growth and evolution. But they, they have just have a natural in their leadership role. People want to follow them. Those are the best organizations to work in where people say, no, we want to work for her because she just has this gift. She brings out the best in everybody. She's respectful and present with everyone versus, you know, what we see all too often is the person who is arrogant, who is narcissistic, whose only agenda is their own self-interest. And those people obviously are able to rise up and, and in a hierarchy and seem to be successful for a while, but they invariably come to some kind of demise that's more or less dramatic. And we, we just, you know, all we can ask for those folks is that they get their karma sooner rather than later. <laughs> and, you know, part of that karma may be their health, right? Because it, it's not a healthy approach to, to relationship if it's this very hierarchical dictatorship sort of approach, um, very power-driven or ego-driven. And there's there's so much more health, there's so much potential to tap into the health of of like you were saying, not only your own health, but the health of the system, the health of the community. If you can come at it from this hum, this place of humility, right? You're more accessible, more available, more approachable, more open, present, receptive, responsive, and unarmored is the list that you have in the book that I like to go back to. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, and that means that you're then also you're open to being informed by energy greater than that of your own mind-body system, this separate unit that you seem to be occupying as you move your way through life. So it's one can draw on sources of energy that are transpersonal. And this is also a great secret of fulfillment and leadership and finding your purpose is to find the transpersonal within the personal to see to feel experience that within yourself uh, 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 and to see that deeper richer element within all beings uh, it's it's and it's it mitigates stress because stress is when you know, when we see ourselves as separate and i have to get this and i'm afraid of that which we all do i, I do as much as anybody else but then i catch myself and it's the moment of waking up where you say, oh, I, I don't have to be caught in this maze of ego and endless attempt to satisfy these short-term ego needs that really, you know, what good does it do? I mean, what it's, you know, it's futile <laughs> and it's absurd. So, so 
learn to see yourself. And that's, you know, that's why, as you know, when you read the book and you were on the seminar, so we help people understand their proclivities. When you realize we all fit into different types, we all have different default settings, programming. Some people are introverted. Some people are extroverted. Some people are more kinesthetic, physically oriented. Other people uh, may, may tend to focus on their senses and what they see as their main means of being in the world, whereas other people are listening more. So we all have these different orientations and different combinations thereof. And it's really useful the more you learn about yourself in terms of your proclivities, the more you can see, oh, yeah, that's how this type tends to respond in that sort of situation. How fascinating. And you can even, it's easy to be more compassionate to yourself, but also it's easier to change. And then it's easier to see other people. When you, when you realize other people are doing what they do, usually because they're just unconsciously acting out what their wiring gets them to do in that situation. They're not doing it to get you. They're not doing it. It's not, it's really not personal. So when you see that, it's a little, again, it's a little easier to be free and it's a little easier to not get all worked up about it. Right. And you still you act in a way that optimizes the situation. It's still totally legitimate to do your best to meet your needs. But if you're wise, you're also figuring out what are the needs of the people around you and how can you help meet their needs while you meet yours. And that's where you, know, then you, that's where you start doing creative thinking. This is where the Da Vinci book comes together with the art of connection. Because So think creatively. What are the needs of all the people in this situation? What haven't we thought of yet for, for meeting everybody's needs? Uh, that's the essence of leadership. It's not that complicated. Uh, and yet it's incredibly rare. <laughs> so... Yeah, so you get to that uh, rare listening and how to, how to listen so that you can really understand what people's needs are um, at a very deep level, right? Not just a superficial, okay, I heard that you need money or I heard that you need time off or whatever it is, but that you can really understand, okay, at, the, at a base level, at a, at a very visceral level, this human is, is looking for this, for validation in this way or this in that way. So that's chapter six. Before we get there, tell me about chapter two, being a glow worm. So that, that's a fun <laughs> analogy. Can you tell me more about that? Sure. Well, it comes from a quote from Winston Churchill, who said, we are all worms, but I do believe that I am a glow worm. <laughs> and if you think about it, Churchill's attitude his optimism in the face of adversity, his courage, inspired a whole nation and helped save the world from tyranny. Uh, well, you know, it, it, we think of it now, it's in the history books, and we take it for granted that the Allies won the Second World War, but it wasn't clear during the 56 days of nightly bombing of London. It's hard, you know, hard for us to imagine what it's like to have your city bombed every night for 56 nights in a row and, and everything around you being destroyed and you're living in the subway system uh, or you've sent your children out to the country to be safe from the, this bombing and you're in the subway system every night. Winston Churchill's in a bunker beneath London planning how to respond to this and he does these radio broadcasts that inspire people not to give up 
and to persevere unwinnable situation, which, which indeed they did. So one person's attitude and courage can make a tremendous difference to inspire others. And unfortunately, one person's negative attitude can also depress and, and bring down many other people. So emotions are contagious for better or for worse. So how do you catch and spread courage and optimism and joy? And obviously, I know you know, you know this really well, that's the, that's the greatest uh, pharmacy. Your attitude changes your physiology moment to moment. So if you are worrying, if you are blaming, if you are hating and, and recriminating, uh, you are not creating the healthiest cocktail for your liver and your spleen and your kidneys and your whole system. If you are being compassionate, if you are forgiving, if you are laughing, if you are blessing, you are shifting your physiology to a much more life-affirming balance. And that's just more powerful than even any natural medication that you can take. Natural rem you are creating the, your own psychopharmacopoeia moment to moment, and it's more fine-tuned to you than anything, even a brilliant doctor like yourself, you know, I mean, I know you know this, that's why we're having this conversation. So if we can get people to, to have the self-healing attitudes that will sustain and strengthen their fundamental immune system and, and overall sense of well-being, the other thing then is too, then they're much more, then if we give them uh, the herb that you found as right for them, it's going to help them even more because they'll be attuned, to, their system will be attuned to get the benefit. Michael, I couldn't agree more. I tell patients that all day long. You know, the best medicine is meditation, even if that means going for a run or exercise. Is I think of moving meditation. There is nothing better than that. Maybe food and sometimes diet can be a big player there too. But really meditation is the number one ex exercise that you could do to help to strengthen your your body, mind, and soul, right? To help you reach your highest potential and optimization. And although I'm not the expert in that, I'm not the one that delivers it, I refer out to it all day long because I, I could not agree with you more. It's that attitude. It's that way we show up. And also I think that the magic is really in, it's that that space between the trigger and the response. You were talking earlier about how we have these ingrained um, learned responses that aren't, they don't always feel like a choice, but once we're aware of them, we can make those choices. And we even might have a responsibility to make that choice, to be aware of these patterns, these habitual patterns, and then change them. And, um, yes. and that there's so much freedom in that, in that knowing that, okay, I, I have this habit and now I can change it. And now I'm going to show up in a different way with other people and, and in my work and in my life. And my health will be better because of it. Yes. And I want to come back even to something you said about the importance of diet. And of course, it's really critically important, you know, what you, what you eat and eating a healthy, wholesome diet is a high priority practice for wellness and, and mediating stress and so on. 
Having said that, the attitude you bring to what you eat may be at least of equal importance to whatever it is you're eating. You can be eating the healthiest, most natural, wonderful everything, and if you're feeling miserable because you have to eat all this health food, you're not you're not going to be getting the benefit of it. And you could eat things that are less perfect and pristine, but if you pause and give thanks and have a sense of gratitude and you're savoring the taste of everything and you're bonding with other people while you're dining, you're probably going to wind up in a much better state. Now, of course, the ideal thing is be grateful, bond with people, and eat really healthy, wonderful (laughs) things, which is what we endeavor to do uh, in our lives. So, I love it. So tell me more about being a glowworm. So Winston Churchill set this great example for what a glowworm could be like. Uh, Do you have other examples of people? Like Da Vinci is certainly someone that we can all look up to. Are there other glowworms that you could point us to as examples of this? Well, the the simplest example, uh, I mean, it's it's interesting to think of. I mean, if you think of the people who inspire you the most, who are the leaders who inspire you the most? Who are the people you want to be around because you feel uplifted, you feel energized? You know, somebody comes into, you know, the person who comes into the room and your posture changes for the better. And the person comes in the room and people sit up because they're just excited to be in the presence of that, that person. And they might say something, but just even being with them, you feel uplifted. So whoever that is for you, and that can be real or virtual. There's, there's now in the world we live today. I mean, last night I was watching Ramana Maharshi on YouTube, you know, one of the most inspiring spiritual teachers for me at the, you know, at the highest level of teacher that I've ever come across. And that's, so I, I fill my mind and heart and energy system with inspiring role models. That's when I wrote about Leonardo da Vinci. I wrote another book called discover your genius where I profile 10 geniuses. So we, you know, we are designed to learn by imitation, for better or for worse. Uh, so, I was, you know, I was at uh, the hotel the other day, and I was giving a seminar in Philadelphia, and I want to have my go down and have uh, coffee in the morning. But in the coffee place, they have a TV playing with this with the CNN and Fox News on. It's toxic. I don't want to see that. You know, I try to curate my life. So I don't. What, what the default setting of our society? I don't want to see. But just as important as uh, uh, what I'm eating, it's the the nutrient for my psyche. And the default setting of that is war, crime, violence, misery, and stupidity. Show me the last time you just randomly turned on the TV and there was something beautiful, intelligent inspiring, elegant, exquisite, uplifting. So that's all. I I don't want to. So I purposely don't look at it. I just get my coffee and I go to a beautiful place and I meditate a little bit. I have a moment of gratitude. I taste the bite of my coconut almond delicious thing and the yummy, delicious coffee. And you know, just you have to be so you're doing this for yourself all the time and but you know because I when I was there to lead a seminar in leadership 
So I know it's part of my responsibility to be a glow worm for those people. You know, anything I say doesn't matter if my energy and my posture and my facial expression and my connection with the people in my class doesn't match what I'm saying. And you make a good point. It's easier to be a glow worm if you're avoiding the tapeworms. That's right. Thank you. Yes, that's <laughs> So avoid tapeworms. Uh, avoid the people who suck your life energy, who are crazed narcissists, and learn to learn to expunge them from your life. Avoid being an enabler. Avoid making excuses for them. Uh, avoid. And really, avoid them. and really add the the beauty and and the the mindfulness and and that space yes. and the good food and the good people. Those other glowworms attract the other glowworms. So yes, then, so that's one by by being around them, and and the more you're around them, then the more you're consciously embodying that. And it's so great that you can do that virtually now. I mean, I watch. Right. And night before I go to last night, I watched Ramana Maharshi. Uh, in the course of the last couple of weeks, I've watched documentaries about Churchill, uh, about Michael Faraday, great discoverer of electromagnetism, uh, about Isaac Newton. Uh, I watched. Uh, right, and you uh, have that choice. You can watch that instead of watching CNN or Fox or all of these news it's programs. Free. Or right, you can do it's it on YouTube. Too. Right. Or Law and Order. Even these, even the, uh, they stress me out, so I can't watch it. But there's all these shows on TV that are, they're very, um, they create a stress response, right? Kind of by design, because it's a little bit addictive. But you can choose not to do that. You can choose to look at things that are more uplifting. So, and that's part of attracting glowworms around you and being one yourself. Correct. So then chapter three is the three liberations. So the first one, freedom from like and dislike. Will you go into that a little bit? Sounds like some judgment. Well, it's weird. You know, the world we live in, if you're online, everything encourages you to either click on this or this. Like everything, or like it or don't like it. Yeah. Oh, i got to get so many likes on my page. <laughs> and, yeah, of course, you know, I get it. You want to attract people to subscribe to your whatever you're promoting and that's all fine just that like and dislike is an immediate automatic reptilian brain response towards your environment I mean, our most fundamental program is is this good for my survival is it not good for my survival which has certainly served us as, at one point or another and it's it's, it's it's not going away either. So we have to worry. It's just you don't want your whole life to be run by what you like or don't like. It's it's lowest. It's a very low level of consciousness. It's very limiting. Uh, just put it. Doesn't mean you can't refer. It doesn't mean you can't listen to the music you like or eat the food you like. Of course not. Just but take off. Take off that limitation of your perception of the world notice if you like it or don't like it but then explore it be more conscious more aware of the world free from that filter you can still decide what you want to do or not do based on moving towards like and away from dislike that's 
that's fine, but be aware that you're doing it. That's that's really the coaching here is wake up. Right. Again, it's that it's those ingrained, those habitual patterns. If we can be aware of them, then we can really assess, okay, do I really not like that? Or does it just make me a little bit uncomfortable because of some habit or some preconceived notion, right? And that if I take a step back and instead of deciding, oh, I don't like that, I don't like that, I explore it a little bit. There's a a, there's a window that opens there, a window of possibility that opens where potentially I could be exposed to something new that I didn't know existed, right? Um, that I used to be shutting out just out of habit. Yes, well said. Very, very well said. Thank you. And then the freedom from taking things personally, the second liberation. <laughs> you touched on this already, but tell me more about this. Sure. Well, that's, it's probably the single greatest stress management methodology is just don't take it personally. It's not about you. I'm a hot reactor, passionate, emotional person who tends to take everything personally. And so I've learned that I'm just way happier if I can step back and remember or recognize that people do things because of their wiring then it feels like it's about me and that it's either inconsiderate or obnoxious or hurtful in an intentional way designed specifically to bother me as much as possible. <laughs> but it isn't really. Uh, I, I'll tell you a funny story about this. So I have, I have this old friend. And we had a falling out many years ago. So... I hadn't been in touch with him for years and, and a mutual friend contacted me and said, he, it seems that he has a brain tumor and he might not have that long to live. Oh, terrifying. Okay. So what was so interesting is what I, I felt instantly, all of my judgment about him, all of my defensiveness about all the things I thought he had done that were, wronging to me all of that melted away my heart opened up with complete compassion and i just thought i've got to reach out to him and find him i'll go see him in the hospital i want to be there with him tell him i love him you know i just thought the love of flowing through the essence of the person then i get another call from the same friend it says oh it turns out it's a false diagnosis he's fine i was thinking what a jerk <laughs> <laughs> Imagine if every person who wronged us, if we could think, oh, maybe they have a brain tumor. Well, that's so that's you got the idea. So I just yeah. now it's just like obvious brain tumor because no rational person would do something so obnoxious. So I can have to forgive them because you know they know not what they do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <that's> great. <laughs> yeah. So that that freedom um, from and that, there's some judgment in that too, right? The like and dislike of what was happening between you or what what's happening in any interpersonal relationship right? that, that taking it personally, but also judging what's going on. And when we can take away both the judgment and the personally part, right, that it's about us, then all uh, these are freedoms. These are about liberations, right, from this, this human exactly. interaction. Uh, exactly. so judgment doesn't go away. The tendency to judge doesn't go away. But once again, we can watch the judgment taking place and now there is a conscious witnessing presence that can then direct your response so it's not based on a 
taking it personally. It's not based on the judgment, but instead it's based on wisdom. Instead, it's based on compassion. Instead, it's based on the values that most people say they believe in, but don't act on because they take it personally and they're acting based on judgment. So, Great. Okay, and then the third liberation, a freedom from blaming and complaining. <laughs> right? So people, this is a false way of connecting. People connect by sharing their misery around various... This commiserating. Together. Yeah. And people love to do this. Say, oh, you wouldn't believe what happened to me. Oh, that's nothing. I would have to me was worse, blah, blah, blah. But you're really just basking in your own stress hormones when you do that. And you're not really finding solutions. It, it doesn't mean you can't say, uh, have empathy, but empathy and storytelling are different. Empathy and one-upping people with your own misery, that, well, that's not really empathy. So, again, notice the tendency to want to commiserate and instead ask, well, what can we do to improve the situation? Yeah, it can be a bit of an indulgence, right? Like, oh, okay, somebody's talking about what's making them miserable. Maybe I'll help them to feel like they're not alone in this or some something like that. Yes. And I get to share my story. But if the, the goal is really productive communication, then really the it should be about getting out of the misery, right? And what are the solutions? What are the creative solutions? So freedom from that will help us get there. And uh, and if you occasionally, I hope it's okay, because I do this occasionally with my yeah, girlfriend. Yeah, sure, like, I'm really sure. tired. It was a long week, right? <laughs> um, so uh, I don't want to be too hard on everyone or myself, maybe. But, um, but that See, if you tell me, no, what's interesting, you tell me I'm really tired, it's been a long week. Uh, my, I could say, yeah, me too. You wouldn't believe it. I, 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 or I can say, how can I help you recover? What would bring you the most energy right now? Is there any, you know, what do you need? How can I help? Right. And then, right. So I'm not, then I'm, I'm, I'm tuning right into you. Or I could different just, experience, Michael. I have to just it, it reflect that, like, just hearing you say that was, yeah. and I don't, you know, I actually my week's been great, but, um, but just hearing you say that, there's a relaxation in my body that if I take a minute, like, my shoulders just relaxed. Yeah. And this is even just kind of like role play right now, right? It's not yeah, it's even just, a real situation. Can you imagine? Yeah. yeah. In terms of how we respond, in terms. Or just, you know, or just the other thing, the other thing to learn to train uh, to do uh, is just to be present. That's the beginning of everything. Is just to be present with in the real moment what other people are sharing, without having to do anything about it. So that's that's a very important capacity to have uh, and to cultivate. It's it's. Heal, it's maybe the most healing thing in its own right is when someone giving advice or doing anything other than just actually really listening and tuning in. It's really so creating that, that space. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, chapter three was about those three liberations. Um, and then chapter four goes on to transcending fixations. 
so, so we've, we've been talking about that indirectly throughout that fixations are your proclivities, your tendencies, your wiring, your default setting. So learn to transcend them. And you do that by becoming aware of them first. And then I like to joke because I'm a big Seinfeld fan about the classic episode where George realizes that the secret to life is doing the opposite of all of his natural instincts. <laughs> it turns out that this is actually a powerful secret of personal development. The, in Jungian psychology, it's, it's learning about your inferior function, the aspect of yourself that's undeveloped, and learning to develop that undeveloped aspect. So on the simplest level, if you're an introvert, you want to learn to do the opposite and go introduce yourself to people, uh, engage in conversations, get out of your habitual modality of just retreating to be by yourself. And if you're an extrovert, do the opposite. Learn to be quiet and let other people speak. Uh, learn to have times of silence. And, and I can see why this comes after chapter three, right? You have to be free of that judgment of the like and dislike. You have to be a little bit okay with some discomfort to be able to try this on. There, you got it. You got it. So, yeah, cultivating versatility is a big piece of this, right? So that in, in any interaction, you're not just going back to that default mode, but you have options in how you right. interact. And so that person, and go ahead, please. No, yes, uh, you're, that's really important in leadership because as the workforce becomes more and more diverse, you have more and more different kinds of people and they might need to be led or managed using different styles. So one person needs a lot of emotional connection and encouragement. Someone else just wants the facts, tell them what to do, give them the measurables, and that's all they need. Someone else needs some coaching and guidance in order to improve. Uh, someone else wants you to uh, just inspire them and give them the underlying principle. And, and you know, even I think you know, as you say this, I think about my friends who have multiple children and yeah. how different each of the children are though in your own home, in your own family, you know, you have that crazy uncle and then you have, you know, your cousin who you're closest to. And then there's the kids and each one of them can have these vastly different personalities. But if we can cultivate that versatility, then we can connect with each of them. Very, it's it's in parenting, it's in relation, personal relationships, and obviously in a professional situation, the ability to shift. And this comes in when you when you're able to be present with different people, tune into them, see what they really need, and have the versatility within yourself to to respond in that way instead of you know the old fashioned thing. Well, we'll do it my way or the highway, and blah. I mean. That does not work in contemporary organizations. Right, right. It's very limiting and probably would limit someone's success as a leader. Um, so 
this greatest point of leverage, you talk about the Costanza principle of doing the opposite. I know you've taught so many seminars and probably have some really funny stories. Has anything really hysterical come out of this that you can share? Uh, I mean, related to the to the to doing the opposite. Well, even the George in in that episode, I I have watched a bit of Seinfeld myself, but he has this like ridiculous experience when he does the opposite. Well, yes, he he's so he's at the diner, and there's a very attractive blonde woman sitting at the counter, and Elaine says. George, that woman just looked at you. And George says, well, what am I going to do? Bold men who are unemployed and live with their parents don't go up and speak to strange women. And George says, oh, my God. Okay, and he summons the courage, and he walks over to her, and he says, hello, I'm George. I'm unemployed, and I live with my parents. <laughs> and she looks at him and says, hi, I'm Victoria. <laughs> So he says, Jerry, I'm telling you, this is my new religion. <laughs> From now on, I will do the opposite. <laughs> I love it. So then in, in chapter five, you talk about balancing the energy exchange. Tell me more about that. Well, all relationships are exchanges of energy. And in healthy relationships, there's an abundant, flowing, generous exchange of energy. In average relationships, there's a quid pro quo accounting of the flow of energy. And in unhealthy relationships, it's every person focusing on themselves and trying to get as much as possible for themselves without consideration of the other party. So the last one is like hell, the middle one is like purgatory, and the first one I talked about is like heaven. So where would you like to live? Right. I live in heaven. And in heaven, everyone is caring for everyone else. So the work of the uh, wonderful uh, professor at uh, at Wharton, Adam Grant, who wrote uh, the book Give and Take, he's done the research on this. He talks about three kinds of people, givers, takers, and matchers. So most people are matchers. They're looking at the quid pro quo and trying to find a fair and even exchange of energy in their relationships. Takers are just focusing on taking, 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 and givers tend to focus on the needs of others. So Grant studied these people to find who is successful in life and how do these energy management styles result in, in what happens in your life. And curiously, he finds that givers are either the most successful or the least successful. They're most successful when they're surrounded by other givers and matchers. They're least successful when they're surrounded by takers. So he recommends, and I agree, to cultivate what he calls becoming uh, uh, otherish, which means you are fundamentally a giver, but you develop the matcher competencies 
If you have a matcher, you go forth. But if you're in a situation where you're giving to a taker, be very cautious. So it's erring on the side of generosity and giving, but being wise and somewhat calculating about it so that you don't find yourself giving, giving, giving to a taker, 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 because those are the givers who wind up with nervous breakdowns and multiple bankruptcies because they're enabling people who will not balance the exchange of energy. And this, this is in your love relationship, family relationships, work relationships. You want to just cultivate this, this quality and surround yourself with people who appreciate what you give to them and feel grateful and respond by giving to you in a way that leads you to appreciate them and feel grateful. And then when there's a disconnect in the system, you have the communication skills to solve it in a positive way. So you learn to give and receive the feedback so that you can fine tune your ability to anticipate and meet each other's needs. Right. You know, I think this was the chapter uh, and the part of the seminar that I got the most out of personally. And there was some nuance in here that I found super insightful. So this whole idea of managing expectations, right? So that, you know, you can approach things with this otherish perspective. And certainly we need to have some mindfulness and some ability to be versatile. And all of these other steps sort of have to preclude that. Um, but then also to, to come into these relationships with this otherish approach and be able to manage other people's expectations because you can be a giver, but if you've overpromised, then people are still going to feel very let down by what you might deliver if it's if it's not going to hit that expectation that you've set. But then somebody else can create very low expectations and over-deliver and have a really different experience. So there was some nuance in here that I'd love for you to go into. And then the other one, um, as we get there, is this feedback piece that you referred to and how giving feedback can be such a powerful part of this. Yes. Well, the that, that, that little chapter in the book on promise low, deliver high, promise low, deliver, is one of the secrets of life. It's really one of the most important secrets of life. Problem is that for a lot of givers, they want they, they want to meet the needs. They're oriented to giving, so they overpromise because they want to please other people. And it's a discipline to learn to be accurate in what you know you can deliver. Really assess. And so therefore you get more and more conservative about what you promise you're going to do. So, and, and, and just savvier and savvier about only promising what you know you're going to be able to deliver. And then if you go beyond that, people are thrilled because, you know, I'll give you a real, the simplest example is when I... I'm planning a seminar with a client and they say, you know, we really need to get people out of there by five 
by 5.30, so why don't we say, well, you know, we'll finish at 4.30? Uh, I say, no, let's say we're going to finish at 5, and then we'll let them out at 4.45, and they're thrilled. Whereas if we tell them we're going to let them out at 4.30, and we let them out at 4.45, same time we let them out, but now they're unhappy and angry with us, we kept them too long. Right, so I let them out at four forty-five. This is not that complicated, but the expectation. Be really careful about the expectations that you set, and then if you do and you outperform the expectation you've set, you're a hero, and if you don't, you're a villain. Right, and it's all about how people feel, right? I, I forget the quote exactly, but it's all about how you make people feel that is how they remember you. And so if you've made them feel like you've performed above and beyond, and then they leave with that experience, then the likelihood of future experiences with you, of future, future interactions being positive is much higher. Yes. Great. Um, yeah, there, there was a ton in this chapter about feedback, about giving smart feedback that I'd love yes. you to expand on. And receiving, so, receiving feedback. Pardon? And receiving. I don't want to lose that part yeah. because I think when we think about feedback, a lot of times as a leader, it's about giving it to other people. But th this piece of, of receiving it is, is paramount, is also very, very important. Sure. Well, you know, I learned this... I learned this because uh, years and years ago, when I was teaching my first co-teaching seminars with a colleague who has, uh, was 10 years older than me, brought me in to these programs, and then we used to teach them together. And at the end of each day of teaching, we would give each other feedback. And we made this agreement, and we're going to be as specific as we can be in what we could improve and do differently. And... We're going to uh, frame it on actionable things, things we could really change or improve. So we did this every day after teaching. An agreement was just to listen when the other person was sharing the feedback without responding or explaining why you did that or making any excuses. And... So I learned to just listen to this critique of what I had done. And instead of being defensive or taking it personally, I would just say, what specifically can I do differently uh, so that I'll be a better teacher next time? And I just, so I just listened to him and I wouldn't just, I wouldn't say anything. Then I would give him feedback. And to his credit, even though he was more experienced than me, he was really open to what I had to, to. And so it trained me to watch him and be able to give him feedback that he could really do something about. So we didn't, you know, we didn't say generalizations like, well, that was terrible. You, you lost the audience. Well, what do you mean specifically? Well, specifically, this person sitting third uh, uh, down on the row, uh, raised their hand and asked a question, and you just kept talking about what you were talking about before, and you didn't really acknowledge that person's question, and you never got around to responding it. And I watched his body language the rest of the time, and he was uncomfortable because I think you lost him at that point. And my friend said, "Really? Wow!" So we just started. Thank you. 
uh, and so you're really trained to try not to miss anybody. It's it's pretty it's measurable. You're improving right away. Then what we would do is we give each other feedback on the things we did that worked. And we wouldn't say anything, just listen. And it's really great having somebody catch you doing all these things that really worked and acknowledge you for it. And you just feel, we always finish with the uh, acknowledgement of what worked. Because it leaves you with this endorphin rush you There's feel some balance really and some celebration and you, of that. Exactly. You integrate yeah. it. So and we do this every day that we would teach. So I, I just learned to, to listen to feedback and adapt to it and, and figure out how I could improve and to catch people doing things well and acknowledge them for it and be really, again, be really specific. If I just say, oh, Heather, you know, you're, you're a wonderful interviewer. Thank you so much. That's nice, and you smile. But if I say, Heather, uh, uh, the way you s uh, specifically are taking the content of the book, and it's part of why I'm, I'm enjoying this conversation with you. It doesn't feel like an interview; it feels like a conversation. It is a conversation because you've, you know, you. My impression is that you came on the seminar. You really thought about these things. You're really applying them. You're really exploring them. You seem to me genuinely curious about them. And now my smile is that so accurate? much bigger. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> right for those of you who can't see me, um, yeah, no, I would. Yes, absolutely, and that, that's it's so fun. It, there is this bit of celebration at the end of that when you can end on a high note. You know, I had an experience when I was in medical school where um, we would learn physical exam techniques, and we'd go up, and there'd be an instructor in the room, and it would be a small group, four to six people, and we'd be doing physical exams on each other, and. I remember for like the first few weeks of it, I was like, oh, stop telling me what to do. You know, I was feeling very irritated by the feedback and by the, what I felt like was an intrusion. And there was one day where it all switched, where I was like, oh my God, this is what I'm here for. This is what I'm paying for, is for someone to give me that critical feedback. And my whole experience of feedback changed after that. And I began to seek it out. Um, and I think that you make such a good point. It's about the quality of the feedback, right? If, if it's like, you're not doing that right, then that's not very helpful. But if it's more about like, oh, you can push a little hard in this context. And in, in the we were, it was an abdominal exam that we were learning to do. And I, I remember I was struggling with it. I was like, I'm not really sure. Am I feeling the liver or am I feeling the spleen? Am I feeling what I'm supposed to be feeling? Am I pressing hard enough? And I realized how valuable having someone there who was watching, who was experiencing it, um, the, the patient on the table um, at the time, how getting that direct, specific, in-the-moment feedback would change how good of a doctor I would be, right? And we can apply this to everything. Wonderful, wonderful. And see, that's what I mean about you giving – that's a really specific, detailed – lively example of what the book is, is, is all about. And there's another way that this applies for people in the healing professions. Because I often find people in the healing professions that are very caring, but the way they use language sometimes has the opposite effect of the healing that they're trying to facilitate. And, and this is, as I'm passionate about working with and coaching fellow healers on 
how to reframe their use of language. I'll, I'll give you an example. A while ago, someone was working on my shoulder. I said, oh, this is really tight. Wow, that's really stiff. And, and I'm lying there on the table and I'm thinking, yeah, thanks. I know it's tight. I'm in pain. That's why I'm here. I know it's stiff. I don't really need you to tell me that. So I could tease, I could tease this particular friend and say, what's a way that you could communicate the same information that would be facilitating the healing as you share this with me? And she said, oh, well, what if I said something like, uh, uh, oh, wow, this shoulder really wants to release. Oh, there's so much opportunity for deep letting go and release and expansiveness in this shoulder. Come oh. on, why, you know, please. <laughs> what a different experience. <laughs> so you can say the same content of information in a way that creates more stress, more tension, more anxiety, more contraction in the person, or that's already beginning the process of inviting change and transformation and healing. So how do, how do we, that's a choice we have in how we communicate a lot of information in everyday life. Right. And so this specific, the specificity piece is a big part and that's the S in your SMART feedback acronym. So the other pieces are that it's monitored, actionable, respectful, and timely. And the, the context in which you give feedback, there's this great quote in here about, um, Tell it basically like tell, you'll have to correct me here, but it's about praising people in public and then giving them feedback in private, and yes. how to when we talk about feedback and, and we want to encourage this sort of thing. This is the the art of communication, right? But that where that happens, the context in which that happens is so important to how it's going to be received. Anybody who's in any kind of relationship, if you've ever said anything to your partner or your spouse that might be perceived as critical and there's at least one other person around, the fallout from that has probably cost you lots of energy and a lot of work to... If not your make. relationship. Yes. Because even being with one other person, that's in public. And, you know, I learned something when I used to uh, be a professional juggler. I used to juggle with a team of people. We had this... Uh, Rule, which is always make your partner look good. If they make a mistake, you cover for them. In public, you want to be perceived as a, as a good friend, spouse, leader, boss, colleague, subordinate. You look after the dignity and the just the the face, as they call it in in the East of the people you're interacting with. Then, if there's some important information that they need in order to avoid getting into a challenging situation in the future, to learn from some of the things they could have done differently, then you take them aside and find a, a time and get them to uh, agree to listen and you share the feedback in a way that is See, the, what makes it respectful is it's you're giving feedback because you want to help the person grow and learn 
and and improve and develop. So it's that intention that it's not putting someone down. It's not making feel someone feel less than. It's about really like, hey, I want to invest in you, and and I think that this could be helpful. Yes, and if you get good, when you get really skilled at this, people want you to give them. People are always getting, they're asking me for feedback all the time. I mean, that's you watch my presentation, will you read my chapter of my book? Uh, and I'm super, I'm actually super critical. I mean, if you want me to, you know, if you want to cook a dinner for me, I can critique it for you. Uh, if you want to do, serve me some wines, I can critique them for you or uh, chocolates or Chinese teas. I'm, I'm very critical because I have really high standards in all of these things. Uh, uh, having said that, I'll tell you my take on how you could improve what you cooked for me, but I'll do it in a way that you're going to feel really good about yourself and what you've done and that you're in this process and this journey of, you know, excellence in cooking. That's just, so if you can say it's not, not, it's not that I'm not going to tell you what is less than ideal from my perspective. It's just the package it comes in. Yeah. And, and, you know, I joke, this is true though. I mean, I never lie about food because you might serve me the same thing again. If I tell you, oh, yeah, it was great. I come back to your house. I got to eat the same crap, crappy thing again. You know, I'm not going to eat it. And, and, and you know, my wife will tell you, if I'm sitting around, if, if, if you serve me dinner and the food isn't good, or you pour me a wine and, and I don't think it's good enough, I won't be impolite, but I'm not eating it and I'm not drinking it. Because you haven't will, lost the art of tact. Right. That tact is, is a, in many cases a lost art. So I will I will change the subject. I will talk about something else. I will say, oh, not. I might even say, uh, you know, I had somebody just beforehand. Uh, uh, so lovely, thank you so much. I mean, so there's times to be you know, politely obfuscating. Uh, I won't unless somebody asks me directly. Uh, critique it, and even then, I'd frame it in a way that was as supportive as it could, could possibly be. So I, I, I try to acknowledge what I thought was the the attempt of the recipe, you know, the the idea that was attempting to be executed, and my views on how it might have been executed to be a, a more of an integrated flavor profile. Because uh, uh, again, you might serve it to me again if I lie to you and just say oh, it was delicious and fabulous. I love it. It was fantastic. You say, oh, good, we're making your favor. Come back again next week. <laughs> <laughs> then you're in for it. So right. this balance of energy, it's starting with feedback, both giving and receiving. And then I think a, a big piece of that was ending it with praise so that there is this, this balance. It's balance in the communication. It's balance in the energy exchange. It's balance in a lot of different ways. But making sure that the end result is that everyone leaves feeling a little more elevated. Is that yes. the takeaway from the balance of energy exchange? Well, yeah, uh, well, they, they go together. This is how feedback goes along with, with, uh, uh, but it doesn't mean you necessarily always finish with praise, but you, you do always finish with encouragement. Mm. Encouragement mm. is different than praise. So praise is, is whenever you can offer praise appropriately, most people love it. And take that and opportunity. It's yeah. It's fun to get, get skilled at, I love I love if I can see something about somebody, acknowledge them for it, and they give me this. And they say, "Oh my God, thank you so much for for saying that." 
that just means so much to me. Nobody's ever actually said that to me before. I mean, it's love. Because what is you know, we experience love as somebody saw you, they saw who you are, and then they sh- they expressed it to you. What a wonderful skill to to develop. Mm-hmm. Having said yeah. that, sometimes it, there may not be much that's praiseworthy, and you, you have to stretch. But encouragement is different than praise. It's hot, it's complimentary. Encouragement is a general statement that you believe in someone that uh, it encourages them. It helps them have the heart, the courage to continue uh, cooking or public speaking or writing, even if you wouldn't rank the meal or the speech or the essay they just wrote at the level that they're aspiring to. Gotcha. And this comes in the context of that creating otherishness, right? Because giving that praise is, it's very generous. It, it is a, an act of otherishness, right? To, to take the time, to have the tact, to give the specific feedback. It's not effortless. Um, so putting in that time, like you said, this is an act of love um, and it comes with that intention. And this is part of, of creating that otherishness versus the giver taker matcher. Yes. Yes. Gotcha. Yes, it is. Okay, so you alluded to the rare listening, the art of communication, right? This would not be anywhere near complete if we didn't talk about the aspect of listening. And you kind of talked about it in the in the context of, um, I think you were referring to it in the context of um, how to understand what someone's needs are so that as a leader or as someone who can influence a situation, we can make sure that everyone's needs are met. And it's it's not a zero-sum game, but really where everyone can be elevated together. Everyone can get what they're needing and more potentially as, as people, as there's creative ideas around what we can create, can create, yeah, getting creative, I guess. So can you dive into that, into what being a rare listener is? I love how you use these acronyms because it makes it a little easier to remember. And then when you're in that moment where it's really stressful, you're like, okay, check the boxes. Am I getting through all of them? So uh, rare is, is an acronym I made up. It stands for receive, appreciate, reflect, inquire. So, and it's rare. It's a rare experience for people to feel that someone really listened to them. Everybody thinks they're a good listener, just like they think they're good at driving. Uh, but they're not, and they're not. <laughs> <laughs> so how do we so, get better? Right? So, it, first, just to receive, to be pre- well, Actually, first thing is, before we talk about rare listening, it's to assess the, the timing, the relationship, the intention, and the place you're in. It's another acronym I made up, TRIP. Timing, relationship, intention, place. To assess the context for the type of listening that's appropriate. So sometimes you really do want to give your attention and listen to somebody, but it's not the right time. Or it's not the right place. Sometimes the relationship doesn't justify you giving your full attention for a significant period of time. Uh, although you want to be generous and err on the side of being as gracious as you can be, as often as you can be, uh, uh, 
if you try to give your full attention and total empathy to every single person you meet at all times, you'll you'll be too much of a giver and you'll get taken advantage of. So we have competing priorities and that's part of what makes makes it important to assess the trip, timing, relationship, intention, place. Then when you decide you really want to listen and do rare listening, you have to be present and receive what the person is sharing. And the more you do so in an appreciative manner, and this is looking through to the essence of the soul, uh, to the core of the person, and then being able to reflect back what they said. It doesn't mean repeating their exact words or but it's just reflect back the essence of what they said. And the simple test for that is to ask the person, have I accurately understood and reflected back what you shared? And it's great when somebody say yes. And I like, you know, if you really want to be skilled at this, you say, is there anything else? Is there anything else until you really, the person really feels, no, you really listen to me. And the inquire is, you know, those are the, that's the inquiries. You ask them those questions. And that, that's a rare, it's simple. It's not complicated, but it, require, it requires full presence, and it requires that, uh, there's even a wonderful discipline called appreciative inquiry, uh, which, which is this process of, of curiosita, where you're using the, the respectful, questioning process to deepen your listening and your understanding of of those around you and it it creates solutions it generates this is one of the most powerful points of the art of connection is that these processes when you really connect with other people when you really connect with other people you you create a context where problems often solve themselves. Right. And some of this also comes through the nonviolent communication books that you had discussed um, yes. at the seminar as well. You had a new name for it. Remind me what was Oh, your- yeah. So NVC, nonviolent communication, uh, it, it was created by Marshall Rosenberg. So I call it Marshall Arts. I love it. In the, in the seminar, you referred to nonviolent communication, and you have another word for that, or another term for that. Would you explain how nonviolent communication overlaps with this chapter? Sure. Well, nonviolent communication was originated by Marshall Rosenberg, so I like to call it martial art. I also refer to it as new context communication, because it's the kind of communication that's more appropriate to a less hierarchical more diverse workforce uh, an organizational structure which is increasingly what we see in in the world today so we grow up learning to use language in a hierarchical top-down be right don't be wrong be good don't be bad uh, and so on and those terms aren't necessarily as useful uh, as other terms that are more skillfully reflect the the needs that we're aiming to s- fulfill in a given in a given situation. So, NVC, martial arts, or compassionate communication is based on on simple notion of let's see if we can just lay out 
an observation about what's happening, something that affects our well-being, without judging it or framing it in terms of like or dislike. Can we just lay out the data of the situation? Then, what feelings arise in response to that, and what needs are underlying those feelings? And then, what requests might we have to meet our needs so that we have a feeling of mutual well-being? So, I think, if I can learn, first of all, for myself, to just say, what's happening here without judging it or evaluating it? How do I feel about it? What are my needs underlying those feelings? And what would I like? What are my requests to help meet those needs? Then if I can help figure that out for the other people that I'm interacting with who are affected by the situation, what's your view of what's actually happening? What are your feelings? What are the needs underlying your feelings? And what are your requests? And it's so tragic that we go through life. We, people don't know how to ask for what they really need. They just, it's not a skill we learn. So if you want to be a genius manager, leader, coach, parent, lover, help you're helping other people figure out what they're feeling, what they need, and what they want. And then they say, oh my God, you're a genius. You're a therapist. You're a healer. You're the best boss I've ever had. You're the lover I've always dreamed of. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just that simple. I'm just going through the steps. Really it's, listening. It's, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful map that creates creates many more options for people to really connect and deal with challenging, awkward, difficult situations and minimize. You know, one of the, my principle, my first principle of conflict management is. Don't make it worse. Don't make it worse. And so often we make it worse by starting right away with instead of our needs, we put forward our positions. And instead of requests, we make demands. And all those responses tend to exacerbate the problem. Right. So do the opposite. So do the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the potential here, if we, if we all learned, or if those of us who did know where to put the effort and take the time to communicate this way, the potential is limitless. I mean, the whole world can change if this is put into action. It's pretty amazing. So you were talking about martial arts. And the last chapter in The Art of Connection is called Turning Friction into Momentum. And this is another place where you apply some martial arts. Um, and you've really taken Aikido, your practice of Aikido, and applied it to uh, some of these concepts that you get from Aikido into communication. Can you expand on that? Can you tell us more about how you do that? Sure. Well, Aikido is a Japanese martial art and spiritual practice. I is a Japanese character that means harmony. Ki is the same as chi or prana, life force. And do, like Tao, means the path or way to enlightenment, path of harmonious energy or spirit. And it's based on the idea that Instead of countering force with force, we can find a way to dissipate that force and blend with it and turn it around. 
we can turn the friction instead of friction we can turn it into momentum so you can transform so, that energy of something coming at you or something threatening into something really healing or something very creative yes yes so I mean, and, and in order to do that you have to learn how to not take things personally for one thing <laughs> and to and to remain centered in the face of challenging circumstances so it's not that you don't lose it, but you have to get it back really quickly. And the it we're talking about is your centeredness, your balance, literally your physical balance, which goes hand in hand with your emotional and mental balance. So this is part of the genius of Aikido. It teaches you to maintain that poised, meditative state when people are grabbing you or pushing you or hitting you, striking at you. And of course, beginners these attacks are done in a very minimal way so that you can slowly develop this. But as you get more advanced, people really come at you and you, you learn to stay balanced and dissipate the energy of that attack. And it's really fun. It's really cool. And it's a, it's a great metaphor for the interpersonal conflict and difficulties. If you can... If if somebody says something that upsets you or you feel insulted or you feel it's unfair, can you pause and literally recover your balance? I remember you mentioning that in the seminar that it's not that you don't get thrown off balance. That's not the point. The point is how quickly do you regain it? Exactly. Yeah. And Cover. When you're when you're skilled, you get back to that center faster than anybody can see, right? You, you, the perception is that you don't lose your balance, even though you have. But Correct. The, it doesn't it doesn't influence the next steps, the decision making, the interaction with the person, the you know, whatever it is that's coming next doesn't get influenced by that being off, feeling off kilter. Yes. So and, and you even and you even empathize with the seeming attacker. So you you understand where they're coming from. The more you understand the quality of the energy and the intention of an attack, the better you can counter it, even if you want to use less ethically advanced responses. It's so on that. well, in other words, if you throw a punch at me or insult me and I lose my cool, uh, I may, I probably won't be as good as insulting you back or punching you back. But if you throw a punch at me and I stay really centered and I move out of the way so I have an angle towards your center line, I'm in a position where it's easier for me to break your ribs or hurt you. Or I'm in a position where it's easier for me to come up with a really witty, nasty insult if that's what I choose to do. <laughs> but you have the choice. So that's why the other, the other chapters come first, right? So that we're, we have empathy and tact and all of these other things. The point is that if you're centered, you're better able to choose your response to an appropriate right. to the situation. Mm -hmm. Instead of being reactive. Uh, instead of just being in automatic fight-flight, hunkered-down 
unconscious mode. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so learning to be centered under increasing levels of stress or to recover your center, as you explained, is a really important skill. It's one of the most important skills in life. Yeah. And Aikido, Tai Chi, Qigong, these are methodologies that teach this uh, in a very effective and enjoyable way. Then you have the option to be empathic. Then you have the option to say, what are the underlying feelings and needs and requests that this person would make if they were in a more centered state and a more inwardly free state themselves? And perhaps you can find a creative win-win solution to to the problem. What I so appreciate about your book and, and what you've shared today is that this is happening in the context of life, right? Like life happens, people come at you there, we interact, we have to be able to interact with people who aren't seeing the world through our lens. And that if we have these tools and if we're putting them into place, we're using them effectively, then there's so much potential we can tap into and we can de-stress, right? There, there's creative solutions that can come out of what might have been a very negative experience or a negative interaction and we can we can find ways to to harness that energy and really move it we're not assuming that oh life is all hunky-dory and like everything's good and we're all in perfect relationships we're we're assuming in this book that like there's going to be stuff to grapple with and here are the tools here are the tools that you can try on and see how they work and as you use them more and more you become more and more skilled at you applying them and maybe even get better and better results Learning to not take that personally and be curious about the person's response and to actually, I I trained myself whenever anybody would disagree or say something challenging to empathize with them. And I'd look for something in what they were saying that I could actually agree with. And I would reflect that back to them, which almost invariably disarms them. And then you can lead the situation to uh, to continue the, 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 the class and integrate it in what they've said and, and be respectful of it or even agree with some element of it and then provide yet another uh, piece of evidence in response to it that might uh, round it all out and, and create an alignment instead of a disconnect. So over the years, people come to me after my class and they say, wow, I was so impressed with the way you handled that difficult person. And I, I say, I'm not, I'm not, I'd say, what difficult person? Because I, you know, if I'm in a class and I pay my money, if I, you come to Esalen and you pay your money and you're there for the weekend, I mean, it's nice to look at the whales and everything, but you want to have a good class. So you have a right to ask a question. If you don't understand something, raise your hand. If you want to challenge me, I'd much rather you do that than be some passive-aggressive person who never says anything and then writes an evaluation. Well, he never talked about this, this, and this, this, this. That, you know, then we, then we, then that's those are the more troubling things: is people who won't deal with you directly. Right. People who that that's a whole other world. That's a whole other book. <laughs> well, and I think like the questions that you were just referring to, if you're a leader, a parent, a teacher, no matter what situation you're in, if you're getting one of those questions, it's probably not the last time you're going to get that question, right? Because there's going to be a new employee or a new boss or a new kid that comes through the class or the seminar. And 
you're going to get that question again. So if you're prepared, if you've if you've kind of gone through the steps of handling it once, then that's going to serve you in the future to take on the next one. And probably maybe there's some validity in it, right? Maybe there is something there to explore. And if we don't have our judgment up. Yeah, you also have to do the disclaimers on your geniuses now because there's a lot of people who want to just take down anyone who's historically famous, especially, God forbid, it should be a white male. Right. <laughs> right? So if it's not a minority person of some sort, and you know, we have plenty of those because I empathize and I want everybody represented, but there happen to be a lot of really genius, great white males, all of whom had huge flaws as does everyone from every background. So if you can acknowledge whatever the flaws are of the people openly and not try to put anybody forward as a supreme. So I'd like to do a little teaser for how to think about, how to think like Leonardo da Vinci, which is the seven steps to genius every day, a book that you also wrote a national bestseller. And, um, I think that what we'll do is do a part do a, a second interview with you where we can break down those seven steps. I think we, we've done a lot covering the art of connection today. And that personally for me was just such a gift, Michael. So thank you so much for writing the book, hosting the seminar, and then having this dialogue with me about how to apply it in life and work. Um, and I'm excited to do the same thing about how to think like Leonardo da Vinci. So again, you have seven steps. And I'm wondering if just we can quickly list them. Um, would you mind doing that so that people can have an idea of what we'll get into the next time we chat? Sure. Right, well, we should also contextualize it and say that how to think like Leonardo Vinci actually came out 20 years ago. This week. Oh, congrats. It's a 20-year tw- anniversary of the book. And then I wrote uh, Innovate Like Edison, uh, with Thomas Edison's great, great, great grandniece. Oh. And I wrote another book called Discover Your Genius, uh, How to Think Like History's Ten Most Revolutionary Minds. So I had written, and then I wrote another book called Creativity on Demand, uh, How to Ignite and Sustain the Fire of Genius. So I wrote all these books about creativity, innovation, and learning from geniuses. The reason I wrote The Art of Connection is you also need to be a genius in communication relationships if you're going to apply creativity and you're going to apply innovation. So that's why the art of connection, that's where it fits. The previous books, so how to think like Leonardo, Leonardo is my favorite role model for creativity. And the seven steps to genius every day, I'll say them in English, in the book they're in Italian, to awaken your curiosity and strengthen it as you get older, to cultivate the ability to think for yourself, be a critical thinker, and appreciate beauty in your life, to embrace uncertainty and learn to cultivate your intuition, to balance and integrate the logical, analytical part of your mind with the more imaginative, intuitive part of the mind, to develop your body-mind coordination and strengthen your core energy and then to find new connections and relationships and patterns, which is really the, the manifestation of, of creativity. So if you're curious, you think for yourself, you sharpen your senses, the result is you'll enter new territory 
but now you're smiling like the Mona Lisa. You can embrace the unknown. You use your whole brain. You strengthen your body and mind, and the result is new connections, creativity. So that's the essential uh, uh, seven steps to genius in the book, How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci. And untap your potential. I love it. Yes. That yes, is the it's, idea. Is how to how to get the most out of life, how to get the most out of what you're capable of, really show up in the world um, as your best self. So yes. if you're interested, definitely be on the lookout for the next podcast with Michael Gelb. We'll have him back um, as soon as we can both get it on our busy schedules. I'd love to put that on the books. Michael, thank you so much for being here today, for all that you do, all that you contribute, um, for your leadership and communication style, being a great role model to the rest of us, and and just really for your time. Thank you for carving out the time in your busy schedule um, and sitting down with me to have a very enjoyable conversation. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. And and you might want to know and and tell your friends and, and everyone who's tuning in that I'll be back at Esalen, January 4th to 6th of 2019, teaching the art of connection again. And then I'm doing a five-day seminar called Body Learning, Poise, Presence, and Power with the Alexander Technique and Qigong. Where is that one? Is that on the West Coast as well? Oh, also at Esalen. Okay, great. And then, go ahead. Say if people want to get information about those or the other public programs, they can go to michaelgelb.com, G-E-L, michaelgelb.com, and sign up for our newsletter. It's free and get free videos and articles and all sorts of fun stuff. That'll be in the show notes below this on the website. And um, also we'll have links to the books you've written, 16, 17 books. 15 so far, working on 16, 17, and 18. Oh my goodness, that sounds like you do stay busy. So we'll have links to all of those so that you can learn more, um, both about the seminars that are available, the books that are available, and then michaelgelb.com, G-E-L-B.com for other information about events and exciting things coming up. Thank you again, Michael. Great to see you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Collective Insights. For the full show notes on this episode and for more great interviews, visit us at neurohacker.com slash collective insights. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Want to learn a better strategy for mental well-being? We designed a beautifully illustrated 32-page guide integrating care for your mind, brain, body, and environment into a balanced approach for a better life. Download the foundational guide to neurohacking at neurohacker.com backslash guide.